Before I start, I always have to begin with giving praises to our king, our president, and no, I'm not talking about Joe Biden, and our Elohim by saying, hallelujah, hallelujah, all praises to Yahuwah and his son, Yahusha Hamashiach, who came and died for our sins so that we may have a chance at eternal life. I'm Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington, and we say Shabbat Shalom to all our listeners. We hope you enjoy our weekly podcast as we study Yah's Torah, his statutes, his commandments, and other principles in the Bible. So, you know my question is every week, do you have your Bibles ready, your notebook, your computer, your tablet, whatever you need as we begin our study? Pastor, what is on the docket for today? Okay, last week <clears throat> we were discussing the marital mingling, and we discussed it from the standpoint of the theosperma, which is the word of Elohim. And we were looking forward to also studying this week about the aphis sperma, which is the seed of the serpent. And we're going to see how that seed of the serpent also mingle with Adam and Eve, just like the word of Elohim merged with Adam and Eve and then mixed with Adam and Eve. We're going to see how the serpent's word also uh, mingle with them. And so what we want to do is to uh, kind of delineate that today so we can see how man is made up after sin. So let us pray, Eternal Father, as we open your word, open our hearts, that your word, your way, and your will may be done in our lives. And as we deal with this subject, make it plain, make it clear, and most of all, help us to make the application with our hearts that we can continue to walk in the path that you have laid out. And we know that that path leads from earth to glory. So bless him who is the narrator, bless him, who is to speak, and bless each ear that listens, that we may be able to comprehend. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it, and for his just sake, we do pray. Amen, amen. and amen. amen. I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the book of Luke, in the book of Luke, and <clears throat> here in the book of Luke, we want to consider uh, at least... Uh, one verse in the book of Luke. And here in the book of Luke, in the eighth chapter, we want to look at verse uh, number 11. Luke chapter 8, verse 11, and it says, Now the parable is this, and he's talking about the parable of the sore, which is also recorded in the book of Matthew. He's talking about the parable of the sore. He said, And this parable, he says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of Elohim. So in other words, Luke is pointing out that when the soil went so the sow, he sowed some seed in the soil. And he's pointing out that the symbolism of the seed is the word of Elohim. So thus far, we have discovered that the spirit, the word, and the life makes up a seed. And therefore, if the seed represents the word of Elohim, according to the parable of the sower in Luke 8, 11, then it is 
that which produces the fruit, okay? So the seed is that which produces the fruit. So when we have the seed of Elohim, we possess his spirit, his word, and his life. And if we cultivate the human soil of our hearts, it would bring about the life of Yah within the believer. Now, so what we're looking at is basically, we have the seed, okay? And the seed, I understand, is sold in the soil, okay? So let us find out what the soil represents. Now, in the same parable in Luke, the eighth chapter, and verse 15, it tells us what the soil is, okay? Let us look at that. It says in Luke 8, in verse 15, but that on the good ground, are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. So we see that the word is Elohim's word, or the seed is Elohim's word, and the soil is our human heart. So when the seed is sown into the human heart, it, in a proper cultivated soil of the human heart, it would bring forth fruit, okay? So when that fruit comes forth, then the believer is able to exemplify the life of Elohim. So we are told that, uh, we are told in the book of Genesis uh, concerning the principle that is there. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the book of Genesis in conjunction to what we have already read. Because when we read about the seed, we want to find that the origin of the seed started in the book of Genesis. And here in Genesis, we want to look at chapter number one. And here in Genesis chapter one, number one, I want to read at least three verses uh, in order to preface our remarks. Now here in Genesis chapter one, and I want to start with verse number 11. And here in the 11th verse of Genesis chapter one, it says, and Elohim said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding in seed and the fruit tree yielding in fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And then we also want to look at verse number 21, which says, and Elohim created great wells and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after his kind. And Elohim saw that it was good. And then we want to look at verse number 24, which says, And Elohim said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and the beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. So what, what we are experiencing here in this particular passage is the fact that when the seed is in the creation of Elohim, there's a principle. And we are told the, in the book of Genesis, that the seed of the plants, the fish, the fowl, the cattle, the creeping things, and the beasts, all have a seed within themselves, which reproduce after their kind. So in other words, Elohim is saying that everything that he created in life concerning the plants or the vegetation world or the animal or the beast, he said they have seed within them, and this seed will reproduce after its kind. Moreover, when Elohim said, let us make man after our image, after our likeness, and we read this in Genesis 1, chapter 26, and notice what it says. 
uh, it says here, and Elohim said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over every and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And I remember that when we read about this, that all of the creatures that it's talking about and the plants and all of that, that they was to have dominion over, we understand that they had seed now and the seed would replenish the earth with the same kind that Elohim had created. Okay, then when it reads in verse 27 of the same chapter of Genesis 1, 27, it says, so Elohim created man in his own image, in the image of Elohim, El in the image of Elohim created he him, male and female created he them. Okay, so what, what, we, are, what we are seeing here is that just like there's a seed within the world of vegetation and also the animated world or the, the, the world of zo zoology of the animals, they have seeds. And so the seed that would go into man would be Elohim seed in order to reproduce after his image and likeness. So when we see in verse 26 uh, that uh, when he said, let us make man in our image and likeness, he was also going to put a seed in man that he can produce after Elohim. And, and so in verse 26, it's pointing this out, that in order for him to reproduce beings after his kind, they would need his seed within them. Once having his word within them, they could reproduce after his kind. So the whole purpose of creating man was that he would create individuals that would be like himself. By understanding the principle of reproduction by a seed, we can better understand that in the parable of the wheat and the tares, it speaks of the good seed. Okay, so let us turn to um, let us turn to Matthew. We kind of established the seed here, Matthew chapter thirteen. In Matthew chapter 13, we want to look at uh, verse 38, Matthew 13 and verse 38. And here it says in the 38th verse of Matthew 13, the Bible said the field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom. Okay, so in other words, He's saying here in Matthew 13, he says the good seeds are the children of the kingdom. So in order to produce children of the kingdom, he had to have the good seed. So when we understand the principle of reproduction by seed, we can better understand that in the parable of the wheat and the tares, okay, in this parable, it points out that the good seed can produce children of the kingdom. They are his children because they possess his word within themselves. This is why the devil is so much in a hurry to get people not to understand the word. And when we read in the parable, those who hastily looked at his word, and, the, and it says the birds came down and devoured the seed. They're trying to take the seed out of the, out of the heart of individuals. Because if he can take that seed out, he knows that's the only thing can help us to reproduce and be like our maker. 
So when we allow that seed to properly be cultivated in the soil of our hearts, then we can become the children of Elohim. So what we have is a kernel seed of wheat. Now remember, before he spoke the parable of the wheat and the tares, he told him about the soil went forth to sow seed, and there were different type of grounds that he sowed the seed in. And so when he sowed it in the proper ground that was properly cultivated, it was able to produce uh, the type of plant that it was, and the Bible calls that uh, the wheat, okay? In the parable of the wheat and the tares, it was called a wheat. The good seed was the wheat. So what we have is a kernel seed of wheat, which represents the children of the kingdom who are the children of Elohim, and they are identified as his children because his seed germinated in them, producing children in his image and likeness. And so this, this is uh, image, this, this about his image and likeness is being produced, according to Genesis 1.26, is because he has a seed within his children. Now that we observe the seed of Elohim, okay, that the seed of Elohim can produce in us his life, his character, and his disposition. Let us now observe the seed of Satan, okay, the seed of Satan. So our next focus will be on the Ophis sperma, okay, the Ophis sperma. Now the word uh, Ophis sperma is spelled O-P-H-I-S-P-E-R-M-A. O-P-H-I-S-P-E-R-M-A, Ophis sperma. Now, the Ophis sperma is composed of two Greek words, Ophis meaning serpent, and sperma meaning seed. Together, these words mean the serpent seed, just as the theospermus is composed of three components, even so, the office sperma is composed of three as well. You remember when we talked about the theosperma? It had three components, and those three components were the spirit, his speech, and his life. And even so, we're going to find that the office sperma also have these three components. It has the spirit, speech, and life. And we will refer to these three components as the wind, the word, and the water. As we have previously pointed out, the wind is the spirit, the word is the speaking, and the water is the life. It is these three components which makes up the seed. When we have the seed, we have, we have the spirit, we have the word, and we have the water. And these three perspective things is what we have when we have the seed. It is these three components which makes up the seed. Just as when one has the theosperma, he has the seed of Elohim. Even so, when one has the ophis sperma, one has the seed of the serpent. Just as the seed of Yah contains his spirit, 
speech, and life. Even so, the seed of the serpent contains his spirit, his speech, and his life. So when the serpent's spirit comes, it, it does so by bringing with it his speech and his life. We refer to these three components as the wind, the word, and the water. Let us briefly define each of these respective components and how they relate to the serpent. Now, the, the wind of the serpent entails its spirit and its breath. This is what we refer to as the pneumo, the, the, the pneumo fist, the pneumo fist, which is the spirit of the serpent. You see, the word pneumos means spirit, and ophis means serpent. So when you put pneumo, ophis together, we have the spirit of the serpent. Now the word of the serpent, the word of the serpent entails his speaking and his communication as to what it is that he desires. This is what we refer to as the logos fist, the logophis being the word of the serpent. Logos means word and ophis means serpent. So when we put logo fists together, we have the word of the serpent. And then we have the water of the serpent. The water of the serpent entails his life and strength. This is what we refer to as the aqua ophis, which is the life of the serpent. So aqua means water, ophis means serpent. So we have what we call the water of the serpent. Now, these three components of the wind, the word, and the water makes up the seed. When one has the ophis sperma, one also has the serpent's deceitful spirit, his deceitful word, and his deceitful life. When the devil speaks inclusively in his words are his spirit, his words, and his life. That's, that's what's in the serpent seed. Everything about the serpent seed is deceptive. His spirit, his words, and his life. So thus far, we have discovered that the spirit, the word, and the life makes up a seed. Therefore, if the seed represents the word of the serpent according to the parable of the wheat and the tares, we are told that the good seed was sown by the Son of Man. So at this time, we want to turn back to the 13th chapter of Matthew this time. We want to look at the book of Matthew. And in the book of Matthew, we want to consider uh, verses 37 through 39. Book of Matthews. Okay. Now here in the book of Matthew, and it brings out, in starting with verse 37, it says, and he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the word, the field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, 
the harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. Now, what he's pointing out here is that in this parable of the wheat and the tares, we are told that the good seed was sown by who? The Son of Man, which we know to be Yeshua. And then uh, it goes on in verse 38. It talks about, it says, the tares are the children of the wicked one. So the tares are considered to come from the seed of the wicked one. And the tares were sown by the enemy. And the Bible says the enemy in verse 39 that has sown these things was the devil. Okay, so the tares were sown by the enemy, which is the devil. So when we have the seed of the serpent, we possess his spirit, his word, and his life. And if we cultivate the human soil of our hearts, it would yield, it would yield life of the serpent within the person. So just as the ground of our hearts is cultivated for the good seed, Satan cultivates the ground for the evil seed, which is the tear. So Satan, the devil who spoke by means of the serpent, deceived Eve into breaking the covenant by eating that which was forbidden to eat. So Satan, the adversary of both Elohim and his holy couple, in the Edenic garden, knew all well the principle of reproduction inherited in Elohim's creation. He knew this principle. He knew that whatever seed that was in man would reproduce after its kind. So in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, we are given this principle, which states that Yah seed within a plant fish, fowl, cattle, creeping things, and beasts would reproduce after their kind. Moreover, this same principle applied to the making of man. The seed implanted into man by his creator would reproduce individuals like he himself. Thus Satan, the devil, understands this principle of reproducing after its kind, and he incorporates it into bringing about the downfall of man. By understanding this principle of reproduction by a seed, we can better understand that in the parable of the wheat and the tares, why it is that the tares are spoken of as representing the children of the wicked one. So here in verse uh, 38 of Matthew 13, it says, but the tares of the children of the wicked one. So as the wheat is identified with the children of the kingdom, so the tares are identified with the wicked one and producing his character. They are his, they are his children because they possess his word within themselves. So what we have is a tear seed, which represents the children of the devil. And they are identified as his children because his seed has germinated in them, producing children in his own image and likeness. In the Garden of Eden, 
it was the seed of the serpent of which was the evil seed of the tear which was sown by the devil into the soil of the human heart of Eve and Adam. And in so doing, he produced a hybrid being of evil and good. The evil seeds reproduce the evil seeds produce the tares, and the tares produce the children of the wicked one. And the wicked one is the enemy, and the enemy who sold this evil is the devil. Now we read here in 39, 38 and 39 of Matthew 13, we reemphasize. In the latter part of verse 38 of Matthew 13, it says, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. And verse 39 said, the enemy that sold them is the devil. So we see, see that. Now we want to turn to a, a principle that Elohim laid down in, in, in the scriptures. And that is found in the, chap, uh, in, in the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, we want to look at the 19th chapter and verse 19. That's a principle that he has laid down here and in, in, in given the Torah to Moses. And Moses wrote this down. Here in Leviticus 19, and also verse 19, it says, Ye shall keep my statutes. In other words, this is a statutes. Now remember, the statues are the things that guard his word. They, they, they make plain his word. Okay, So when we start digging into the seed of his word, we're going to find his statues. He says, you should keep my statues. Thou shalt not let cattle gen gender with a diverse kind. So in other words, he's saying here, if you got cattle, I, want, I don't want you mixing those cattle up with anybody or any other kind of species. I don't want you to do that. And then he says, and thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed. In other words, he said, if you're sowing uh, a corn, put corn. And if you're sowing soybeans, sow soybeans. But don't put the soybeans and the corn together. In other words, whatever you are sowing, you got to make sure it's distinct and different. If you are sowing tomatoes, sow tomatoes. And if you're sowing celery, sow celery. But make sure that you don't mingle them together. He said, neither shall a garment mingle of linen and woolen come upon you. So he's talking about the law of distinction here. Okay. Now here in this, in, here in this passage, it points out no two types of seed should be planted in the same ground and nor should diff, uh, beasts of different kind be put together. Elohim wanted each of his vegetation and each of his animals to stand out distinctively and different by putting into each species its own seed to reproduce after its kind. This was not only to be true of plants, fish, fowl, cattle, and creeping things and beasts, but also for mankind. Therefore, when Adam and Eve embraced the seed of the serpent, 
their nature was intermingled with that of the serpent seed. It was intermingled with the serpent seed. So you can see here that in the beginning, when Satan introduces seed in the same ground, which was Adam and Eve, the soil of their hearts, he was intermingling his seed with the seed of Adam. And when he did that, he was breaking that principle of distinction of what it meant in order to preserve this, this, the seed of Elohim. So when we read in Matthew, going back to Matthew, and we, this time we go on to Matthew chapter 13, and notice what it said in verse number 8. It says, but others, but other fell, talking about the seed, but other fell into good ground. Look at verse to Satan. Now in Matthew chapter 13, verse 8, it says, but some, but others fell. In other words, talking about other seed fell into good ground and it brought forth fruit. In other words, when you plant the seed in the ground, it's going to bring forth whatever the seed is, it's going to bring forth. So here in Matthew 13, 8, it said when it got good ground, and he cast a seed in that, it brought forth fruit. Now, we know fruit as to be the character of an individual. Okay, so when the seed of the serpent was also cast in the ground, just like the good seed, it would bring forth fruit. In other words, it would bring forth the character of Satan. So here in this passage of Scripture, we are told that the seed sown in the ground brought forth fruit. So we ask ourselves the question, what does the ground in this parable represent? Okay, so let's find out what the ground represents. And we turn to Matthew 13 and verse 19 to find out what the ground represents. Now, the verse 19 of Matthew 13 says, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. Okay, now we just read that some of the seed was sown in good ground, but now this text is saying that the ground that it was sown in, it says in the latter part of the 19th verse of the 13th chapter, it said, that which was sown in his heart. So the heart is where it was sown. So when we look at the ground, we are talking about the heart. So here we see that when Yeshua told us this parable about the sower, he merely presented it with a symbolic language. However, in his explanation of this uh, parable, the literalness of the symbol of the soil, which is symbolic, he spoke in the language of a literalness pointing out that the ground represents the heart. And he points out that behind the symbol of the soil, he is referring to our hearts. It is our heart that the seed is sown. Therefore, when the soil of the human heart is sown with more than one type of seed, the soil of the heart is defiled. Elohim said, if you mix animals together and if you mix seed and the soil together, the soil, it is defiled. 
And, and what we notice is that man's defilement is that instead of being in the likeness of his creator, he takes another likeness and image. So let us see what happened to man after he had incorporated the seed of the serpent within his being. And we want to turn to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. So here in Genesis chapter 5, we want to consider the first three verses. Genesis 5, 1 through 3, it says, verse 1 of chapter 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that Elohim created man in the likeness of Elohim made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Verse 3 says, And Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. So what we are looking at, or what, so what we notice in these verses is that they point out to us how man went from the image and likeness of Elohim, likeness and image of man. We may ask the question, did not he create man to be in his image and likeness of Adam, that Adam was a man? So therefore, if Adam was a man, did not he create man to be in the image of man. Elohim's intention was that he would make a man however he intended for man to reflect his image and likeness, not the image and likeness of he himself, which was man. When he made Adam, he wanted Adam to reflect his image, not his, not the image of a man. Elohim intended that every time Adam and Eve would gaze upon themselves and each other, they would see and be reminded of their creator and maker, not of themselves, to look at the image and likeness of one another, and they themselves would only produce self-centered creatures bent on self. Now that Satan had corrupted the nature of the holy couple, he produced in them his nature. So we want to look at the nature of what he produced within them. Now this time we want to turn to the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, we want to look at chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. And in the 14th chapter, we want to start with verse number 12, Isaiah 14, 12. And we want to read to about verse 14, Isaiah 14. And we want to start with verse, verse 12. Now here the question is asked. He said, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of Elohim. I will set, sit up also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. 
and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. Okay. Now, now Satan had corrupted the nature of the holy couple. He produced in them his nature. And here in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14, we read concerning Lucifer's selfish nature. What we notice is that it speaks about his heart. Notice what it says. He says in verse 13, for thou hast said in thine heart. So we're talking about some hard stuff here. What was happening with his heart? Just like we said, a soil represents the heart. So we see that Lucifer had a heart and something happened to his heart. And so when we look at what was in Satan's heart, keeping in mind that Yeshua says that our heart was represented by the soil. Consequently, when we examine the heart of Lucifer, what do we find? We are told in verses 13 and 14, of the 14th chapter, what his heart contained. He said, for thou hast said in thine heart, notice what it said in verse 13, he said, you have said what was in, in your heart. In other words, Elohim is looking into his heart, reading his thoughts. And he is saying, for thou hast said in thine heart. So Elohim can read our hearts. And here's what he said in his heart. The first thing that he said was, I will ascend into heaven. The second thing that he said in his heart, I will exalt my throne above the stars of Elohim. The third thing that he said, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And the fourth thing that he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And the fifth thing that he said, I will be like the Most High. From these five things, we can see that Satan had a serious heart problem. His heart problem was with himself. He was saturated with himself. He said, I, 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 I. Five times he was obsessed with himself. Moreover, not only do we look into his heart condition, we see what is in his heart, but in the book of Ezekiel, we are giving the causative factors concerning his obsessions. So let us turn to the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, we want to look at chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28, and we want to consider verses 14 through 17. In other words, we see what is in his heart, but we want to see the causative factors. What caused this to be in his heart? Okay. Okay, in Ezekiel 28, verse 14 and following. It said, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so, Thou was upon the holy mountain of Elohim. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. So in verse 14, it says he was the anointed cherub. 
that covered. Now, a covering chirp was one who stood on the ark of the testimony. And on the ark of the testimony, you had a lid where angels were on that particular lid. And the lid fitted over the ark. And as it fitted over the ark, under, in the ark itself, you had the Ten Commandments, errant rod that budded, and you also had a pot of manna on the earthly tabernacle. So in the heavenly tabernacle, you also had an ark of the testimony that contains the Ten Commandments. But the fact is, the one in heaven is the one that Lucifer, at one time, he was, he was one of the covering cherubs that stood over there. And it talks about that he was upon the holy mountain of Elohim. Now we know that in Isaiah, the 14th chapter, he was talking about that he wanted to be exalted on the holy mountain. In this text, it is saying that he was on the holy mountain, but he was as a covering cherub. So he wanted to exalt his position. And verse 15 says, thou was perfect in the ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. So Elohim said, I created this being. I created him perfect. But then when I began to examine his heart, I found that iniquity was in, in him. And verse 16 says, by the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. And thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of Elohim. Now notice what it says. He said, I will cast thee as profane out of the uh, mountain of Elohim. Now what made him profane? Well, Satan himself had the seed of Elohim in him. And what made him profane was that he corrupted himself by being so selfish that it made him profane. Because when you have two seeds of a different kind in the same ground, it makes it profane. It makes it a detestable to Elohim. And so Elohim is saying, since you have mixed my seed that I put in you with your evil seed, he says in verse 16, and I would destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So he's saying that the position that you have held, Lucifer, as a covering cherub, you will no longer have that position because you're no longer worthy. You're trying to take over heaven rather than to be a servant of heaven, so I will destroy you. And notice what verse 17 says. Now, in verse 17, it gives us the cause of why Satan did what he did, your cause. It doesn't justify what he did, but he, he, this is why he did it. Verse 17 says, thine heart was lifted up. Notice, the, notice he's dealing with his heart problem. It's going back to the heart. It's going back to the soil of what the seed was planted in. He said, thine heart was lifted up. Now, why was it lifted up? He said, because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. And I will cast thee to the ground. And I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. So here we are told in these verses that Satan was once an anointed cherub that covers. He stood over the Ark of Elohim in his very presence because between those angels on the Ark of the Covenant was the Shekinah glory. In other words, Elohim's presence was between those angels 
and his lights that shined on these angels made them anointed, the anointed light that came from Elohim himself. So Lucifer was a wise angel, one of the wisest, because he stood right in the presence of Elohim. And Elohim said of him, I have set thee so, I made you perfect. Notice also in, 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 in the verse 14, it tells us that he was upon the holy mountain of Elohim. And here we notice that he had a place on the holy mountain where Yah was. And that place that he had, he was not satisfied. However, he reached a point where he wanted to be in the place that Michael, which was Yeshua's uh, on earth, he wanted to take his place. And, and in verse 17, we read, we are told concerning the causes of his self-exaltation was, it is hard. In verse 17, it says, thine heart was lifted up because of three things. What were those three things? He was lifted up because of his beauty. That was the first. And then he was lifted up because of his wisdom, which was the second. And he was lifted up because of his brightness, which was the third. So here we see that Satan's heart's problem was selfishness. And when he sowed his seed into the soil of the human heart of Adam and Eve, they now had the same spiritual melody that he possessed. Now that their hearts were corrupted with selfishness of partaking of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, that which they partook of is what they became. Like that nature, which was good, now possess evil. They ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and what they ate of is what they became, good and evil. By them allowing the serpent seed to come into their being, they broke their wedding vows, which was the covenant of which their creator explained to them that if they would eat, they would die. Now that they had made a breach in the marriage covenant, there were some consequences to follow. When we consider the consequences of the covenant breaking Elohim spelled out in the Torah, he had Moses to codify for the children of Israel. He was showing them that when they had a marital relationship, the things that would cause them to break that marital relationship. Now, next week, if it's his will, we'll be talking about the consequences as a result of breaking the marriage covenant with he and his children. And we'll see what is involved in that marriage covenant that forbids them not only to have eternal life, but also to have that broken relationship with Elohim. So we want to look into that next week to see what the consequences were and what stipulations Elohim had in order to hold a marriage together. And if they didn't follow those stipulations, then they would have an, an annulment of the marital vows. And once they had broken those vows, what were the consequences? So we'll deal with that next week. But basically, this is what we're looking at. 
that when the seed of Elohim was incorporated into Adam and Eve, how their nature changed. So basically when Adam and Eve took the fruit, uh, did, and they ate it, basically that was the point that they took Satan's seed. Right. When they internalized what he said within them, just like when they internalized Elohim's word, they were married to him. But now when they took his seed, then they corrupted that marriage. Yep. It's at the point in which they accepted his word and acted upon it. You know, one of the things I find interesting uh, with this discourse today is that we are dealing more and more. We are starting to hear of the mixing of seed. And I'm starting to hear more and more of this term called chimera, which is basically mixing different seeds together to create something new. And I think a lot of this went on pre flood in all with Satan. And we're starting to see itself again, but it's one thing that I, I, I see that when people create these new beings or whatever in a lab, I don't think they can uh, recreate in hmm. all, you know, they can, they can create maybe one and maybe try to put it together again. But these things that they can create, because one of the things I think when, when y'all created the world, he created male and female so hmm. that things can procreate and reproduce. But it seems like Satan does not have the ability to create male and female so that they can procreate. He can only create one or two of a thing. Yeah, right. Uh, he, he can only alter what Elohim has created. Mm-hmm. Just like even if, even in his own nature, he did not create himself, but he could alter himself. Mm-hmm. And so when you deal with the Tamara and what you were speaking of, when Elohim was on earth, what did he say? He said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the coming of the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. In other words, way back there in Noah's day, they were trying to uh, amalgamate animals, and they were doing a lot of things that we read in the book of Yovelin and uh, these different apocryphal books. We find that it's a lot of things that they were doing uh, to crossbreeding and all of that. Mm-hmm. So they was crossbreeding during the time of Noah, so... If Yeshua says that in the end of time, they would be doing the same thing they did in time of Noah, we would expect a lot of crossbreeding to be taking place. Mm-hmm. We'll see like animals trying to uh, they, uh, merge with uh, individual parts of animals and humankind. Mm-hmm. They would have GMO foods and stuff there, be taking different foods, like they would be even taking food and trying to match it with animals or fish mm-hmm. in order to preserve the life of it. So we see all of this amalgamation going on, which is basically trying to mingle things that Elohim did not mingle. Mm. So I'm wondering, DNA is part of the sea, correct? Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering with this COVID-19 vaccine, is this one of Satan's way of messing with Yah's seed and his people to bring about another type of people, possibly? 
because we don't know what the effects of it is right now. Yeah, well, what we do know is the fact that not only the RNA, but I mean, not only DNA, but the RNA, all of, all of this is a, a part of Satan's scheme in his laboratories to uh, create creatures that he can control. Mm-hmm. Because you have to understand that Satan, Satan really knows that he's going to be destroyed. As the passages that we read, Elohim said, I'm going to destroy you. Mm-hmm. And what he's destroying is not only Satan, but he's destroying the distorted nature that Satan has caused. Mm-hmm. Not only in himself, but also in Elohim's beings. So there are those of us that have to recognize that our RNA and our DNA all as a result of Elohim making us this way. And Elohim, once he made, made us this way, he made the plants that was edible to eat to be able to match our RNA and our DNA mm. to be able to give us the nutrients that we need. Mm-hmm. And whenever we take things foreign into our system other than what he has given, then it's going to alter that which he has given. Mm. It's going to alter us physically. Mm -hmm. And then when we take in eternally and act upon the word that is false, it's going to change us spiritually. And then uh, when we take into our substance life properties that are not what Elohim wanted, it's going to change our life. Mm -hmm. So, what he's saying is to, to, to us is that when we amalgamate with Satan, Satan's going to try to change us mentally, physically, and spiritually. Wow. Wow. And I, I think we see a lot of that going on today um, mm-hmm. because from what I'm hearing, uh, a lot of this vaccine is changing people mentally also. And mm-hmm. um, because, you know, I think it can even, they said Take control of their brain waves and everything else, mm-hmm. you know. But I'm wondering, yeah, I'm sure. is it like a digital form of um, hypnosis, pretty much, you know, where it's easier for him to take control rather than because not everybody really believes in hypnosis and someone taking control of them, but maybe in a digital format, because I think now they're really uh, – you know, as well as they're trying to mix human seed with animal seed, they're also trying to now mix human with technology mm-hmm. and all. So a lot of the times when we see these movies with these people that's half human and half electronic, I think mm-hmm. this is a way they're trying to test and move towards that and mm-hmm. c- creating, I guess, a breed of superhuman. But another question I, I, I'm wondering too is that when we see now this transgender movement, it seems like they are trying to pre Satan is trying to produce a people of non-gender because like when you look at the supposed uh, bafflement, which is supposed to be Satan, you know, with the Mm -hmm. horns, the breast of a woman and Mm -hmm. parts of a, of a goat and have, I mean, all of this, all of these things to me is, is basically all the mingling of seeds. He's just showing, has been showing you what he wants to do, create mm-hmm. his own species of whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, well, when you look at the uh, mythology, and uh, a lot of the mythology, when you read it, go down to Babylon, you might see, uh, you might see an eagle with a man's head, and you might see a bull uh, with a man's head or down in, in Egypt and stuff like that. And yeah. when you look at the mythology, it's the amalgamation of man and beast. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And while we don't believe in that, but that those things are telling us that that's where our man is moving toward. Mm-hmm. See, it's interesting that when you talk about the mark of the beast, see, when we talk about the mark of the beast, to a large extent, we are talking about how uh, we think beastly, we think violently, like like animals, wild animals. Mm-hmm. So we say mentally that we have the mark of the beast. Mm-hmm. But there's also the physical mark of the beast, too, in that we are, are taking on animal propensities by taking things and eating things from animals that goes into us. Mm-hmm. And they have documented that when you take an animal to the slaughterhouse and some of those animals can really sense that they're about to be killed and all of that adrenaline that they have in them goes into their blood and stuff like that and, and into the meat. And so when they slaughter that meat, rather than cut it where the jugular vein drains out the blood, they slaughter it. And when you slaughter it, you got the flesh intermingled with the, uh, with the blood and everything and the adrenaline that comes out of the adrenal, of the adrenaline glands goes into the meat. And when we eat the meat, a lot of the same substance go into us. Yeah. And sometimes you might feel depressed all because of the fact that the adrenaline that the animal was sensing before it dies mm-hmm. and it's in the meat and you don't take time to take the blood and the urine and all that stuff out the meat, it goes into your system and you begin to take on the animal propensities. Mm. And so when you begin to take on that stuff, then it's changing you physically, not only just mentally, but also physically. And when you get that type of spirit within you, then it can do something to you. Just like when you look at the coronavirus and the vaccine, it's interesting to me is that they have not done that much research to know how is this going to affect the people who are taking it. Yeah. Now, if you had, if we had been having cancer all of this time, mm-hmm. and then you have things like the March of Dimes and all of this that people have been collecting for years, and you have people been doing research for years, and they still haven't discovered a, a cure for cancer, how in just a few days or a few months you have come up with a cure for the coronavirus as deadly as you say it is? Yeah. So I would only draw the conclusion that uh, a lot of this stuff is a preparatory stage of something that is greater, that, that, that is coming. And as it is coming, there's a possibility that the technology, if they keep on experimenting with us, we'll become zombies and at the expense of the state, they'll be able to control us yeah. just like they can shut down an automobile because they are connected with t- technology they'll be able to shut down the human species as well. Yeah. And you know, it's crazy because I think in a lot of the movies and TV shows, uh, some of these things have been foretold years ago, you know, Mm -hmm. where, you know, they're merging technology and human and they are able to shut them down when they are not acting right. You Mm -hmm. know, and I do believe, you know, at, at first I used to think that the whole zombie was just something fictional. But as I move, as we move toward, you know, every single year with different things that's happening, it makes me think, is this as crazy as it sounds? I mean, the CDC mm-hmm. has a page dedicated to surviving a zombie apocalypse. Mm-hmm. The CDC. So I'm like, OK, it must be something behind this. And I recall several years ago in Florida it was a man 
who killed another man by biting his face off. And I think a police approached him, told the man to stop. He just wouldn't. He seemed like he was out of his mind and they had to shoot and kill the man. But a lot of these things were kept hush hush. You know, mm -hmm. it, it was out for a minute and you didn't hear of it no more. And uh, so I think a lot of these things are already out here now. It's just that they haven't come fully into fruition just yet. Uh -huh. Well, with that, we will go on to our next segment. Let's talk about that. Up next is let's talk about that. So part of in today's segment and let's talk about that, I kind of want to discuss clothing and wear and how we are should dress as uh being children of Yah. So if you can, will turn with me into the text of Deuteronomy, verse 22, verse 11. Again, that's Deuteronomy 22, verse 11. We want to look at certain things in scripture in regards to clothing and garments and other little things that's dealing with how we should approach what we wear when we're out in public. So, in Deuteronomy, verse 22, verse 11, it reads, You shall not wear a garment of diverse sorts as of woolen and linen together. And I don't know if you remember, the pastor touched on this a little bit earlier in the book of Leviticus, I believe it was 1919, where it stated the same thing. So, my question this today, pastor, is, does this mean when he states woolen and linen together that we should not weave fibers of an animal in in a plant together because basically woolen which comes wool which comes from the lamb and linen which i believe comes from cotton so i'm wondering first question is are we not to mix plant fibers with animal fibers well i think what what we uh what we are dealing with, with here is uh, a principle, and I think we just need to first understand the principle of what he's articulating here in uh, Deuteronomy 22, 11. Mm -hmm. Okay, he says, Thou shalt not wear a garment of diverse sorts mm -hmm. as a, a woolen and linen together. Now, considering the, uh, uh, a lot of this was given to the priests, but that does not mean that uh, the average person that is wearing it, mm -hmm. uh, if they were not a priest, they couldn't wear it. But we know in the last days, we are all priests. But what he's saying here that oftentimes the priest, he would officiate in the sanctuary. And as they officiate in the sanctuary, we know that linen is a type of uh, material that is porous mm -hmm. and it, it doesn't cause one to sweat, but but woolen cause on the set sweat. And so if they were willing and linen together, it would cause unnecessary perspiration of the priest. Mm. But one of the things that is bringing out in addition to that is that Elohim is trying to teach his people the law of distinction. Mm -hmm. In other words, one thing should not be mixed with another. In mm -hmm. other words, you got linen, where we're linen. You got woolen, where we're woolen. It's a distinction. Mm -hmm. Now, when you take the same distinction in verse 11 and go back to verse number five, I think he reiterates mm -hmm. uh, in the context of these verses, it says, the woman shall not wear that which pertains to a man, neither man 
uh, put on a woman's mm-hmm. garment for all that do so are an abomination unto Jehovah Elohim. In mm-hmm. other words, he's saying it, you should always be able to distinguish in your garments and in, 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 in your relationships, whether it's a male or female, that, mm-hmm. that should be a, a, a distinction. So what he's showing is just like in the creation, everything reproduces after its kind. He want everything to be distinctive and different that we can recognize it. Mm-hmm. So when we come to the point of mingling everything, just like the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it, it was a lot of, you know, when you get, get that evil seed in you, you, you mingle it together and pretty soon you, you may be doing some good, but you're also doing some evil mm-hmm. because it's mingled. And he wanted a distinction among his people in their eating habits. He wanted a distinction in their dress. And he'd also wanted the, them to have a distinction in their gender so they can be recognizable because when things become unrecognizable, then that's a possibility you can get caught into sin and not, not even know that you're in it. Mm-hmm. So, so the, Primarily, the mingling of the linen was mainly geared towards the priest, but we as uh, followers of Yah can still uh, do, you know, do what the priest was doing, you know, and wearing one particular type of uh, garment. Yeah, well, I mean, in a way, we are priests. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like the Apostle Peter says, you are a chosen generation or royal priesthood. In other words, when Yeshua died on the cross, according to the book of Revelation, he made all of us priests. If you read in the first chapter of the book of uh, Revelation and you read on down, it says he made, when he died, he made us all priests. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, one of the things that, that, that we want to understand is that how does a priest dress? Well, Yeshua was our high priest, and the Bible says in the book of Revelation that uh, as our high priest, he had a garment on. And it was garment was from his shoulders all the way down to his feet. And we know that in the Old Testament that what the priest wore, he wore linen garments. Mm-hmm. He wore all white linen garments. And the high priest on the day of atonement, he may have changed, but basically he wore all linen garments. Okay. So that was a symbol of two things. Number one, it was all white. That was a symbol of the righteousness of, of, of Yeshua. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if that garment that he wore was a symbol of righteousness of, um, of, of, of uh, uh, righteousness by faith or the righteousness of Yeshua, he was our son of righteousness. Righteousness cannot be mixed with anything else. Because mm. if you take that garment and, and, and start mixing it with other type of threads and stuff like that, Mm-hmm. then it does not portray the purity. Anything that is mixed is adultery, is what you call uh, uh, adultery. Mm-hmm. What is adultery? Adultery is when you have uh, more than what should be in something. Let us take an example. In some countries, if you have olive oil, you cannot mix it with any other olive oil. Mm-hmm. In other countries, you may be able to, to get away with taking olive oil and mixing with another oil. That's because they permitted that by law. But in some countries, if you mix olive oil with corn oil or any other oil, they say that oil is adulter- is adulterated. Mm-hmm. And once it becomes adulterated, that means it's been mixed with something else. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the fibers of the linen, 
and it represents the righteousness of the Christ uh, of Yeshua, and we're going to wear his righteousness, mm-hmm. then it cannot be mixed with anything else. It has to be pure. And so he's demonstrating through dress and clothes that when you dress a certain way, you give off a certain type of uh, exterior or personality. Mm-hmm. Just like if, if, if I told you that uh, a person had on a polka dot hat and they had a striped suit. Mm-hmm. First thing you would think about, you would think about a clown. That's where a clown dressed. Mm-hmm. If somebody came up to you and saw you dressed that way and called you a clown, you may get mad and say, I'm not a clown. Mm-hmm. But then they would say to you, if you're not a clown, why would you dress like one? Yeah. So the same thing with Elohim, he's trying to say, you need to have purity in your dress. It needs to be, number one, it needs to exemplify me in purity and number two you need to be identify me as to uh the oneness of righteousness it's not mixed with anything else mm-hmm. and when we are reconciled to elohim how are we reconcile to him he want us to have a righteous life to put on the robe uh, uh, of righteousness and that robe of righteousness comes from his righteousness and is demonstrated through his dress and so he's saying, I want you to be pure and I want you to be distinct and different. This is why the apostle Peter says, you are a chosen generation or royal priesthood. And you know the priesthood primarily by what? By their dress. Mm-hmm. So now to me in biblical times, their dress, I believe, was a whole lot different than what it is today. I think they wore a lot of robes in where you can mm-hmm. kind of wear a linen garment from head to toe. But in these days, is it would, be, would it be a sin if a person, say, wore a pair of jeans, which is made from cotton, a shirt that was made out of polyester, uh, you know, it would that is that still mixing if a person was to wear a different piece of garment that was made of a different fabric for different parts of the body. Uh, I think, okay, let us look at verse 11. And I think that that would kind of answer the question that you're asking that if I had some blue jeans and then I had some nylon or shirt or something like that, I think this is, this was kind of answer it. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go. Let's let it, let us let the verse speak for itself. Okay, in 22.11, it says, Thou shalt not wear a garment of diverse colors, of diverse sorts. Okay, now, when it says wear a garment of diverse sorts, what is that talking about? Is it talking about the individual pieces that we wear? We may underwear, maybe cotton, and then we have a nylon shirt, and then we have on blue jeans. But he says, Thou shalt not wear a garment of diverse sorts. Mm, so, okay. So, so is he talking about that each piece should be made, whatever it's made out of, is made out of. That's one way of looking at the text, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the other way of, of looking at it is this way. Now, when you consider the high priest, that when the high priest put on a garment, uh, it had blue, it had red, it had purple, and it had scarlet. Well, scarlet, purple, uh, it has scarlet, purple, blue, and white. Mm-hmm. Now, according to, if you would, if you would say that uh, the priest was violating uh, 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 by wearing garments of diverse sorts, 
he would be in violation, wouldn't he? Mm-hmm. Because he's got red, he's got scarlet, he's got purple and blue. Mm-hmm. So Elohim is saying when they made those garments, each piece had its own thing that was not mixed with the other things. Mm-hmm. But we have to make a distinction. Is he talking about all of the pieces of garment? Because remember that when Yeshua died on the cross, the Bible says that there was one garment that he had mm-hmm. that they wanted to tear, tear it apart. But the soldier said, no, let us, since it's just one piece, let us not tear it apart. Let us gamble. And whoever win the gamble, they would take the whole garment. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking at is that it looks like to me, he is not talking about all of the clothes that you have. He is saying that the clothes that you do have, that they should not be of diverse source, which is teaching two things. Number one is that you're teaching distinctiveness. And the number two, you're teaching, uh, uh, you, you're teaching that there's a difference between mixing and things that are solid or things that we consider uh, 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 straight, which represents righteousness not being mixed with error mm-hmm. as opposed to things that are being mixed that you can't tell the difference. If you can't tell cotton from nylon, you can't tell nylon from wool and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's what it looked like he's talking to me is that he said diverse sorts of a garment. Now, when we consider a garment, are we saying that everything that you wear has to be all of the same thing? Well, if that's true, then you may not be able to wear shoes because shoes may be made out of leather and the other outfit is made out of cotton. Yeah. But it looks like to me what he's saying that whatever you have, let it be what it's going to be. If you got a shirt, don't mix that with everything. If it's cotton, let it be cotton. If it's blue jeans and it's made out of wool, let it be wool. But don't don't mix it. Don't mix the wool and the cotton together to 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 make a particular particular garment. Okay. Uh, also, uh, want to go on to what you touched on too a little bit earlier about Deuteronomy twenty two five about a man should not wear a garment that pertains to a woman, and a woman should not wear a garment that pertains to a man. But in this day and age, and I'm seeing it more and more, they have what they call gender neutral clothing, mm-hmm. which is basically neutral colors that either a man or woman can wear. And is this wrong for a man or woman to wear gender neutral clothing? Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask it this way. Uh, mm-hmm. When you when when you talk about gender neutral clothing, uh, I think that's somewhat of uh, what we used to call, uh, or what we still do call, unisex. Yes. In yes. other words, one unisex. Okay. Now we want to look at this from two aspects. Two aspects. Number one, uh, we're going to look at it from the aspect of of, of materials. Mm-hmm. In other words, can a woman wear the same material as a man? Well, I think they can wear the same material as a man. Because mm-hmm. I don't think they have a monopoly on that. Because the main thing in in the material is that which covers the body, but the material of a man should be cut in a different way than the material of a woman. Mm. 
In other words, in a cultural setting, it is already defined what a woman will wear and what a man will wear. So therefore, if I'm yeah, if I'm wearing uh, what I might say a plaid green and red, a woman can also wear plaid green and red. But that plaid green and red certainly shouldn't be shaped in the same way that mine is mine is shaped. Mm-hmm. Okay, it should it shouldn't be the same same thing. It should be if they wear a dress out of plaid and red green and uh, red and green plaid. Mm-hmm. And I have a, a a pants made out of red, green, and plaid. So that's a distinction. You you're able to see the distinction in my pants as well as her uh, as as well as her her dress, but the same material. Now the other thing that when we get into colors, uh, now when we get into colors outside of just shapes, uh, what what is a feminine color? And what is a masculine cover? Mm-hmm. You know, is there is there such a thing as a masculine or a feminine color? This has all been defined by what we would say man yeah. is something feminine and something masculine. Mm-hmm. But Elohim never limited man uh, to any particular colors, even when they had the CCs. When you make a CC, many people said it had to be blue and white or but he never said that. No. The only thing he said on the CCs is to make sure you have a blue cord. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's all he said, and he left the rest of the creativity to you. So, when 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 Elohim, uh, let, let us turn to a text here in the book of Matthew, and in the Matthew, let me see, uh, I think it's chapter five, and. Here he says uh, in Matthew, no, I believe it's chapter 6. Chapter 6, I believe it is. All right. Uh, let me see. All right, let, let, let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 5. And we look at verse number, well, let's start with verse number 28. Here he says, and why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Uh, in other words, he said, you know, these plants that you see, the lilies and stuff, he said, they don't work, and neither do they make clothing, okay? Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to say in verse 29, he said, and yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if Elohim so clothes the field, the grass of the field today and tomorrow is cast into the oven. Uh, shall he not much more close you, O oh, ye a little faith? Now, what, what I want to bring out of this text is here, Yeshua is comparing the lilies of the field with the way Solomon dressed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what I'm saying, when you look at the lilies, what do you see? You see different colors of lilies. Mm-hmm. And matter of fact, even Elohim himself. Uh, he demonstrated the same principle that I'm talking about. When he made a tiger, he made the tiger with orange and black stripes. Mm-hmm. Both the male and the female have orange and black stripes. Yeah. So that lets us know, even in the animal world, you can be uh, masculine or feminine, but you can still wear the same colors. Mm-hmm. He did not limit the colors to just one species that a man can't wear pink and only a, a woman can wear pink. 
a man can wear brown, but a woman can't wear brown. He never, he never gave that. Colors is something that he is given in, in nature. In matter of fact, many people who design cloth, I believe they get a lot of it from nature, from the plants. And then you look at the birds and how colorful they are. You look at the animals, how colorful they are. And they began to get patterns together. But the male and the female in the animal world, they are not limited by colors. So why should we be limited by colors and we have an intelligence? But we know that when we look at the female lion and the female, uh, uh, the male lion, they have different shapes and different genital organs, but they have the same type of, uh, of, of covering. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that uh, we are limited to certain colors because we can incorporate many different colors. I remember a long time ago when the cars came out, they used to be black and brown. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like when women started getting into the market of cars, we started changing colors. But the same uh, women who dis who wanted different colors and men wanted speed in cars, men still getting those cars that women have the high colors on, and they don't they don't squawk about the colors. Yeah. They just simply ride in no cars. Matter of fact, Elvis Presley. I think his colors was black and pink. Yeah. Okay. So mm -hmm. what I'm saying is basically the shape should be different, but the colors I don't I, I don't see where Elohim is is, is uh, forbidding us that male and female cannot wear the same colors or the same material. But he is saying that in the same colors and same material, I still want to see that distinctiveness of knowing you're a woman and I'm a man because when Elohim comes back to get his children, he said they all shall be dressed in white. That means that the female is going to be dressed in white, the male is going to be dressed in white, and perhaps they have a distinction on the shape of the clothes, but mm -hmm. the material and the colors will be the same. Okay. And the last text I kind of want to review, um, if we can go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, and we're going to talk a little bit about modesty. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's again, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. And it reads, okay. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest peril with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. So my question is, for a woman, it's going to, well, it's two parts. Uh, they said a woman should adorn themselves in modest apparel. What would be basically, is there a certain thing that would be considered modest apparel? And the second mm -hmm. question is, is there such thing as modest apparel for a man too? Yeah, I, I think when you consider modesty, uh, that's an interesting word because when you deal with modesty, what you're dealing with is uh, something that is between two extremes, okay? Mm -hmm. If something is modest, it means that you're not too far from the left and you're not too far from the right. You, you in between the left and the right. Mm -hmm. And usually now, this is what I found. Usually when you define modesty, modesty is defined within the context of a culture. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, when you deal with certain cultures, they deal with modesty among themselves that may be different from another culture. True. Just, just like when I was in Africa, uh, 
in their culture, it was perfectly permissible that if a woman in public wanted to breastfeed a child, she would breastfeed that child right in public. Mm-hmm. That, that's their culture. They have accepted that. Mm-hmm. But here in America, if you would pull out your breath, a woman pull out a breath and, and, and breastfeed a child, she would have to go into secret or solitary because it's not really accepted in our culture. Okay. Yeah. So what we are saying is that when you talk about modesty, you have to look at what modi- what what culture calls modesty. There was a time that when a person wore uh, pillow pushes or short shorts or 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 or, or, or things above their knees, they call that immodesty. Okay. Yeah. And then by the same token, you had individuals, women who would wear uh, skirts down to their ankles. That was considered immodest. Wearing it too high and wearing it too low. But to wear somewhere around the knees, that was considered modesty. So we have to see what society calls modesty. And oftentimes, when we see people dress in a society, uh, those whom we look up to, say, for instance, like lawyers and judges and and people who influence our society, we look how they dress. Do you ever see a lawyer come into the court? Well, you may see these days, but usually they are pretty, uh, they are pretty conservative, okay? And so when you look at that, and then you look at fashions of people showing most of their anatomy when they put on clothes, and you see men putting in things on too tight and showing their body the features, and then you see men uh, wearing uh, clothing and stuff that may be out of date. And then you see those who are wearing clothes that are in date, but they are fashioned in such a way that it doesn't make the person look out of place within one's uh, culture. Then that is what you consider modesty. So modesty is not wearing something that is out of date, and then wearing a fashion that is is just uh, just beyond uh, what one is trying to portray by wearing exotic stuff, but it meets somewhere in the middle that is it 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 it, it is up to date, and at the same time, it is not so exotic that it just brings attention to itself. Because I know when I was growing up, they said. One of the things about a man, when he walked in the room, he should not even be noticed because he's dressed in plain. And so I find the same thing with women. You can, you can, you can dress provocative where you showing your body parts, or you can dress somewhat conservative that you're not, you are not overly exposed. And your culture that you are in plays a lot of, of the part of telling you what is and what is appropriate. So, Pastor, can you take us to the throne in prayer? Okay. I love Father, as we've had another opportunity to discuss your word and to be able to see some of the things, oh, Heavenly Father, as we should, how we should dress and how we can practice modesty, because all of these things speaks about the gospel that we believe in Yeshua, the Messiah, that we may be able to exemplify you in our dress and to have the distinction, O Heavenly Father, knowing man from the woman, and to be able to 
have a distinction in society that we will not cause confusion between the sexes. We do ask, oh, Father, that as we continue to study your word, oh, Heavenly Father, and to see the marriage relationship that we have with you and how your bride and how she was dressed, that that dress represented your righteousness, and this, this is what we are striving for because when Adam and Eve sinned and it passed upon all of us, it even affected the change in our clothing, oh, Heavenly Father, that we have to take off the clothes of sinfulness and put on the clothes of righteousness. And we know that this clothes of sinfulness, oh, Heavenly Father, is represented by immodesty and clothes of righteousness is represented by modesty. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us to make the distinctions and to be able to walk in the way that you would have us to walk, that when Yeshua does come, you would not only find us dressed right on the outside, but also on the inside of the things that we have, oh, Heavenly Father, that he can see that we have been with thee. Now continue to bless those who listen and bless those, oh, Heavenly Father, that is new, and bless those who have been with us for some time, that thou would continue to let your blessing be upon them, that as they look at these things and share it with others, that the power of the Holy Spirit may help us to be able to teach through the life that we live and the things that we wear, that you have taken possession of our hearts and that the seeds that you have planted there is producing the likeness and the image of Elohim. And when you produce that type of image, when you do come, you can be able to meet your people and to know that the death of your son was not in vain. And when he see all of us dressed in the righteousness of your son, then he could redeem us. And one day we'll have a life that will move throughout eternity, world without end, all because of the fact that we have adopted your principles in this world and the way that you would have us to, that we can be candidates for the kingdom of Elohim to be able to have eternal life is my prayer in Yeshua's name. And for his dear sake, I do play. Amen and amen. 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 Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the Torah of Yahuwah. Blessed are they that guard his testimonies that seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to guard your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to guard your statues. And then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all your commandments. I will pace, praise you with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned your righteous judgments. I will guard your statues. Forsake me not utterly. I'm Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington, and we are the Science of the Covenant. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. May Yahuwah bless you and keep you until next week. Shalom.